All right, it's uh, Tuesday, April the something, uh, the 11th, 2023. We're going to be reading Born for Dead by Lori Guns. We're going to be reading the chapter called Sesame Street. Yes, you heard it correctly the first time. Sesame Street. Right, that one. Yeah, thought I was going down the wrong humming trail there. Alright, so let's get into Sesame Street. A few months after her first encounter, Shenda got her marching orders from her boyfriend's mother. Um, the elderly woman had put up with Shenda until her crack habit got. So Shenda is the person she met in the previous chapter. Um, till her crack habit got in the way, making her volatile and quick to pick a fight. Um, so she started living with her in her boyfriend's car, a late model sedan with plush uh, velvet upholstery and a spider web crack in the windscreen. Shenda packed her own heat, a nine millimeter, and I thought that she had made the hole with a bullet until she told me she had put it there with a high heeled shoe fight with her boyfriend during a high heel shoot with her high heel shoot shoot doing a fight with her boyfriend sorry she parked the car on rogers avenue which we she called sesame street for the unpredictable theatrics of its inhabitants some of the cast lived or hung out in the crack house across the street from delroy's house and shenda nicknamed it the papa's graveyard it did seem like the end of the line, but she always considered herself superior to the graveyard crew because of her West Indian background and her university education. He thought of her crack smoking as a detour, never a destination, a temporary indulgence that would pass like a fever once she was ready to give it up. And too much ambition plus not enough education equals disaster was her formula for explaining Sesame Street. The Papa's graveyard became her base in the bitter winter that follows, followed Delroy's trial. She stepped there sometimes and stayed inside during the day to smoke and to be warm. The crack house was a four-story brownstone that had once belonged to a prosperous woman from the South who earned her living as a music teacher. She had long since gone into a nursing home and her grandson had turned this formerly genteel residence into a derelict shell inhabited by a floating array of squatters. But relics of the music teacher occupancy was everywhere in the graveyard. Ornamental woodwork that was warped now with cold and damp and two battered pianos that uh, still stood in the upstairs front room. Shenda had taken music lessons as a child in Jamaica. And when she was inspired, she played snatches, snatch, snatches of Mozart and Beethoven on the baby grand. Sometimes a squatter named Dread interrupt her, uh, interrupted her to cook his crack on top of the piano. Dread lived in one of the upstairs rooms and earned a few dollars by renting it out to girls who gave blowjobs for smoke. 
But Shenda and I hung out in the garden apartment downstairs. It belonged to a couple, Natalie and Sinclair, who marshaled the graveyard troops into something that resembled a family. Natalie was a spectral presence, real thin and hollow hide, and she coughed all winter long from pneumonia. She spent most of her days in bed tucked under a faded red satin coverlet that gleamed against the dark walls of the room. Shenda used to call her the den mother. The argument, Natalie's, to to augment, (laughs) to augment Natalie's welfare check, Sinclair bought brought in a little money by fixing electrical appliances for people in the neighborhood. He had wired their apartment with a bandolo hookup to a light post outside, and it was only part of the building that had electricity. There was no plumbing either, so everyone relieved themselves in plastic buckets that Natalie kept in a curtain alcove of the bedroom. The back of the graveyard faced a courtyard behind the Lutheran church around the corner and sometimes the buckets were emptied there. The bedroom was warmed by a single eater and on cold days the place was a refuge for dealers who came in to get warm and smokers who needed to get high. Alright, so I'm gonna... Yeah, we got, if you call the street by the real name in the book, Shen, Shen said in a very, on a very cold afternoon while sharing some crack with Natalie, the cops are going to shut down the whole place down. But she was only joking. We all thought the outside world was past caring what happened at Sesame Street. All right, so just a pause here. So just considering the, the state of how these people were existing in New York, and, and, and knowing that this is not a, 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 a fictional book. All right, this is, this is definitely, this is real life. This is uh, Lorigan's sharing what happened. So these are real, these are real events. A real, real, real. Um... And to imagine that people left Jamaica to live like that, normally would have been unimaginable, actually. God has blessed, God has blessed us so that we don't live like that. But just in retrospect, as I'm going through my thought process here, I can see where you come afar in and feel there's not an option and you keep rolling the dice open because you put in time, your time you want, you want some kind of reward for the time that you have put in, for the effort that you have put in and you are hoping to, to reach that you don't want to give up. So you keep going and it can be a little bit frustrating i can understand or um hopeless you get into that spiral when yeah so it's not a, yeah i can see it so again but by the grace of god because as a young youth when i and i'm happy i didn't get here when i was much younger when i was more I came here at the right time, I think, in, in age. Because if I'd come here as a teenager or so, you can never tell. You understand me? So I came here at the right time, I think. And, 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 you know, God bless the people who came before 
and the stories that they can tell. Keep going. 10 or 12 smokers were gathered in the graveyard that day, huddled around the heater and an elegant old coffee table, topped with smoke blue glass and that had been left behind by the music teacher. They were cooking their own crack in small vials of water and baking soda, looking up now and then to watch the color television that was tuned to America's Most Wanted, an afternoon favorite in the basement. The Jamaican passes often turned up on that show and someone joked that the title referred to us all. Suddenly, the wood floor and the hallway outside began pounding and we heard shouts of, open up. Everyone froze. I looked at Natalie on the bed and she gestured for me to open one of the sliding wood panels. They were badly warped, so I had to get down on my knees and push from the bottom. I looked up from the floor into the slit of light uh, from the hallway and the barrel of a gun. The three cops crashed into the room and held us all at gunpoint. They were undercovers, dressed in acid wash jeans and grubby sweatshirts, but the bulletproof vest gave them away. They took, this, they took in the scene and spied on the little piles of crack on the blue glass table. One of them sighed. Okay, he said, we're not looking for drugs. We are your stashing guns here. Everyone laughed and eased their bodies down into slouches as the cops tore Natalie's bed apart and ripped the cushions from the couch. No guns. They seemed relieved, but chagrined and backed out the door, mumbling threats about coming back. The crackheads were lighting their glass stems before the, the cops were even on the street. We get the message loud and clear, Shenda shouted into the empty hallway. We get the message loud and clear, Shenda shouted into the empty hallway. You see that these are all just black people smoking and blowing their fucking mind. No gun people here. So we niggers can just go on smoking ourselves to death. She waved her stem in the air as if she wanted someone in the world to take it away from her. The police raided Shenda and me in a kind of conspiral bond. A conspiratorial bond. The police raid united Shenda and me into a kind of conspiratorial bond. Our friendship deep, deepened after that afternoon and soon she began confiding the story of her life. The same fourth in, in, it came forth in shards of memories through months and finally years as I learned to understand her as someone who specialized in the loss of things that were irretrievable. Love, family, and homeland. Ah, me just, I just give me a headache. I, I, a sharp thing just got through my head a minute ago, a second ago. Ah, boy. We had our best talks in Shenda's car, cruising around Crown Heights. We were sitting in the front seat on a raw, rainy day, parked in front of a takeout place with boxes of food on our laps, when she told me about losing her virginity to the only man she ever loved. You were childhood lovers, Robert and I, Shanda began, almost at a whisper. So whisper. We were childhood lovers. We were childhood sweethearts, Robert and I, Shanda said, almost at a whisper. I never wanted anyone else. I still can't remember the day. I still can't remember the day he touched me. It was summertime and nobody at my house but us. And he said, and he just said, 
today we're gonna do this and we did she went to the university in Kingston and got a degree in English literature when she and Robert married Shenda began teaching at a private school in Hanover uh, they were, these were her ripest years her son was born in 1977 and it seemed like his birth meshed with the promise that Jamaica held in the mid-70s. We had a country that wanted some serious attention, Shenda said. God, I was idealistic then. I was going to, I, w- it, I was going so good. I was 22 years old. I had a house, I had an education, I had a husband and a son. And Robert and I had four years together. We had four beautiful, wonderful, fantastic, unimaginably dreamlike years together. It was a hell of a thing when he died. He was in a road accident that killed everyone in the car but Robert, who survived with serious injuries. He loved soccer and refused to obey his, obey his doctor's order not to play while he was recovering. One afternoon, he was on the field near their house when a ball went out of bounds and he couldn't resist kicking it back. His spleen ruptured and he died in the hospital in Montego Bay. Shenda was pregnant with twin daughters when Robert died. You know, I talk it now, and it's only when I remember the poems I wrote after he died that my pain starts to sting again. It's smart, but it does not burn. It's, it's smart, but it does not burn. I've learned to resolve myself to the pain, but I never got over it, really. It affected my entire life. She recited the poem somewhat. She recited the passage from one of her poems. I'm going to smash up the schoolhouse where you would play. I'm going to pray God bring down fire and hail. I'm going to take out the bomb, destroy the world. I'm going to sit in the kitchen under the shelf and cry a little and die a little all by myself. Okay. So we ate our jerk chickens and looked out in the rain, peeling down on the windscreen. I think a lot of my problems stemmed from his death. I became bitter about life, saw that it don't have nothing to offer. So what am I trying for? And you know me, with my words. I was flashing out, trashing out everyone. I was cursing God and they tried to stop me from doing that. My mother especially, she said, never question God's goodness. There's reason for everything. But I said, reason? Where could you find a reason in this? I got two babies in my belly and my son was barely four months old. Where's the reason? So I said, if you got a reason for this, I don't want to hear it from nobody else. I want him to come, put himself in some form so I can hear it, live it live and direct from the source. And if he don't come, I tell you that he be wicked to me. He hates me. Shenda stayed with her mother until the twins were born, but she had lost the will to walk good. She stopped teaching and drifted over to Negril, where a gentle man stood out in the crowd. She was meeting Americans who wanted to smuggle ganja, and she cut herself in on their deeds by hooking them up with growers. Cocaine was already trickling into the sleepy little town, and Shenda met two coke-running American women. One lived in New York, with trust funds upon trust funds, and she, and she introduced Shenda to a wealthy businessman from New Jersey who paid her 
her way up to New York in 1981. She lived with him for only a few weeks before she moved to Brooklyn and briefly shared a place with a trusted trust fund that coquette. Shenda stories about this woman were laced with wild humor. Her mother lived at the Dakota, the landmark apartment building on Selgren Park West, and they used to have long conversations every morning about what to wear. Should I do the red dress with the gray shoes, Shenda trilled, or the white one with the beige shoes? I'm sitting there listening to this, wondering where on earth I was, and all I could think about was my kids. God, I just wanted to hug my kids. She found jobs as a temporary office worker and stayed with them for a couple of years until she started to smoke cocaine. And the rest is history, Shenda said, with a bitter laugh. I admire Shenda for her unapologetic anger at life's indifference and, at, and the way it can deal blows somewhat with some, which some people don't recover. She had no self-pity about her, her own current predicament. She had chosen this life and she never doubted that her strength would one day pull her from it. When the spring came, we left her car parked in front of the Papa's graveyard and walked around Crown Heights, ducking into reggae record, reggae record shops on Nostrad Avenue to check out the full cases of Ethiopian paraphernalia and stopping at the Korean grocery stores to buy clusters of lime green guineps, uh, which we sucked on as we strolled. Vendors on the corner of Eastern Parkway sold jelly coconuts and tamarind balls rolled in sugar. Tall stalks of cane, a sliced pineapple in plastic bag, which made Shenda homesick. Our route took us to a tiny store where Rastafarians sold goatskin drums and huge leather crowns, big enough to stack dreadlocks underneath. You see this spot? Shenda asks. Well, it, it used to be a restaurant. The woman who ran it was named Maggie, and she was my best friend. Everyone on the streets know Maggie's story. She came up from Kingston and did fine for the longest time, running a cook shop, until some dealer showed Maggie about cocaine. She fell in love with him and let him stash his stuff at her place, and soon she started dipping into it. Well, you know how when you eat one slice of the cake, then another, then another, and pretty soon you figure, you might as well just name out the whole damn thing. So it went. Maggie went through seven ounces of this guy's coke, and when he came back, he just tied her, ha her hands behind her back, stuffed her into a black plastic garbage bag, and threw her off the roof. <sighs> Shenda paused to wonder whether Maggie could have survived the fall. If he had thrown her, if she had thrown her free and then maybe she wouldn't have died. Could have just broken her bones. But if your hands are tied behind you and you're in a bag, you don't see how far you have to go to the ground. Plus the fear. When you're in a bag, you're disoriented. It's like you're going up or down staircase. That was almost four years ago. But I still see Maggie's face sometimes, like it was yesterday. I remember all fat and shiny-eyed, sweating and singing in her restaurant. She was my best friend. There were so many deaths in the neighborhood that every street corner carried a memory of a shooting. On our way back to the Papa's graveyard, we passed a corner adorned by the murals with the names of young men and women who had died. Some of the names were accompanied by dates and faces surrounded by flickering candles, rainbows, and doves. 
there's a killing that spring on Rogers Avenue. One of the Jamaicans in the front of Delroy's store shot an African-American dealer who had intruded on their stuff, turf. Just before we heard the shots, Shenda had opened the graveyard iron gate. Just before we heard the shots, Shenda had opened the graveyard's iron gate to one of the Jamaicans from the corner. His name was Luke, and he had sensed trouble and was getting off the street. We stayed in Natalie's room until long after dark, when the police had left and the coroner's one had picked up the body. Luke was philosophical about the slain. He had been a soldier in the Jamaica Defense Force in the late 1970s and seen so much shooting in Kingston neighborhood that nothing in Brooklyn faced him. We are all here finding a living, he said. Every man must eat bread, but it's rough out there all the time. Luke's military training gave, gave him disdain for the posse shooters who sprayed bystanders with gunfire. He liked to think that if the need ever arose, he would have the skill to kill whomever he was after and leave the innocent out of it. The first, the first story he ever told me about the politi political warfare he had experienced in Kingston involved the shooting of an innocent man. It was in 1977, right after the Green Bay killings. My brother was the JLP caretaker for a year and he had a pair of green ballet shoes that he loved. You know, that was the party's color, but he was the only one in the area with such a fine slippers. There's a guy named Clinton who was getting into all kinds of, of trouble, breaking into houses and robbing people. So my brother stopped him from doing that and told him he would help him look for work. Clinton asked to borrow my brother's ballast. A squad car full of PMP police was just around the corner when Clinton walked from his yard. The cops saw him in the green shoes and took him for Luke's brother, the JLP activist that they were after. They shot Clinton dead. I ran down to the corner, and there is this cop from the eradication squad standing over the body and shouting, who him is, who him is? So I say, you killed the fucking man, and you have to turn around and ask who him is, and he, and he do nothing to you. Luke saw more than a share of such killings. You don't have to do anything for the cops in Jamaica to kill you, he said. I saw a friend of mine from Rima die one night. The cop shot him. But he didn't die right, right away, so they threw him in the car trunk. And he, he knew they were going to take him to some other place to finish him off. So, so he was shouting, don't let them put me in the trunk. Don't let them put me in the car, because I don't die yet. But they carried him off, and everybody started to run from police station to police station, hospital to hospital. And we didn't find anybody until the morning came and we heard that he had died. Luke went into a downtown Kingston club a few weeks later and found the same policeman drinking there. He's about to throw a firebomb into the place and a friend dragged him away. So many things like those. It's hard for people to forget and even if five or ten years go by, the person who did that killing is not dead. You must do something. Sure. Because every time you see him, you remember your friend, your brother, or whoever they killed. It keeps riding you until you get to do something. I saw Luke Often after that day, whenever I went to check Brambles at his spot, or Shenda at the graveyard, Luke would be selling his crack in the stairwell next door to Delroy's old place. One night, a party of us went down to a posse bar called the Bucket to eat a spicy boiled lobster that the chef there cooked every Tuesday. Brambles and Shenda was in high spirits, warm by white rum. 
and uh, and music. But Luke was under a cloud. Yodi supplied two thousand dollars and was worried that he might run run into him at the bucket. So Luke's man did catch up with him a few weeks later. It was closing time at the bar where Luke's, Luke was having a nightcap with Jerry, the owner. After he locked up for the night, the two men walked down the street to where Jerry's car was parked. Jerry saw a black sedan idling by the corner, and he heard five shots just after he called goodnight to Luke. Shinda called me the next day. I waited at the crowd around his body until the cops came. She said, they knew Luke anyway. They had been watching him for a long time. But it was terrible to see the way they just dumped him so unceremoniously into the coroner's van. Two of them. Alright, so you know something? We're talking about Luke, the soldier man. And I was rushing through because of a certain reason. I saw Luke often. Whenever I get to check Bramble's other spot, Luke would be selling scrack on the stairwell. One night, a little party of us went down to a posse bar called The Bucket to eat a spicy bar lobster that was cooked every Tuesday. Brahms and Shender were in high spirits, one by white from a music, but Luke was under a cloud. He owed his supplier $2,000 and was worried that he might run into him at The Bucket. Okay. Luke's man did catch up with him a few weeks later. It was closing time at the bar where Luke was having a nightcap with Jerry, the owner. After he locked up for the night, the two men walked down the street to where Jerry's car was parked. Jerry saw a black sedan idling by the corner and he heard five shots just after he called goodnight to Luke. Shinda called me the next day. I waited in the crowd for his, uh, around his body until the cops came, she said. They knew Luke anyway. They had been watching him for some time. But it was terrible to see the way they just dumped him in such an unceremonious, so, so unceremoniously into the coroner's van. Two of them took each leg and dragged him like a dog. I listened to the last tape I'd made with Luke that night at Bucket. I transcribed it after Shenda's call, hearing the voice of a ghost. I'm not thinking about writing, sitting down up here and selling drugs for the rest of my life. I try to get a legal job, but I don't succeed. And I have a woman and a baby to take care of down in Kingston. Someday I'm going home. You know why this touch me and I just have a few, I just did a small video. And there's this song where I say, home, place where I belong. And I can't sing, I know. You know, it's like somebody say, where are you going? And I say, I'm going home. Home, place where I belong. And there's a small video, and I couldn't post that video, you know. And I'd done nothing to do with this. People don't understand. People don't understand home. It, people do understand. People understand. They understand home. But, yeah, it is like... A few days later, Shenda and I were sitting at the front step of, grave, of the graveyard, turning our face greedily up into the spring sunlight. <laughs> greedily, that's a good one. We were both thinking about Luke, glancing now and then at the empty stairwells across the street where he used to stand. 
Chenda spoke some lines from John Milton's um, Las Cidas, a poem she memorized as a schoolgirl. In memoriam, look, she said, I can see him over there. I can't believe he's dead, oh God. It's a long road. It's a long road to where we are now. All right, and that ends Sesame Street. Next chapter is going to be Bones and Gully. I'm going to mark that one, but we're coming closer to the end of this book. Um, a couple of things had come to mind. I don't want to go too long, but police throwing people into jail. That reminds me of Roger Texas, when they killed Roger Texas. Roger was my best friend when I was growing up um, in, in Britain. And um, in fact, I brought one of Roger books here to Canada when I migrated here. Um, a book that we shared. Um, it was a TD book. And if, if I dig up, I probably can find it where they write the name Texas on, in, inside the book. A graffiti. Um, when they killed Roger, they shot Roger, see me, shot him. Roger wasn't dead. And they put him in the back of the Jeep and then they drove around um, where the road in here. Uh, Bernard Lodge Road, run back road. Run, not that, that's not back road, Bernard Lodge Road, the road to Spanish Town. Claiming that they're taking him to Spanish Town um, Hospital. And the story is that um, the other guys that were in the other Jeep, say, the Jeep that Roger was in, they realized that the lighting on the Jeep, the headlight, disappeared. It, they were driving behind them and it disappeared. So the Jeep that they were in went to that Roger Jeep. And then they hear the gunshots and then the Jeep that Roger was in sped up and catch them back up. So they figure that's when they killed him, when they stopped. And they just shot him and then sped back up and catch up back with the convoy. But that Friday, I remember the Friday, I was in Britain. I went to pick up my son. And when I was picking up my son, as I was driving out of Britain, I saw when the eradication, eradication, what we used to call them? Can't remember, an eradication, we used to call it. Eradication, an eradication. Ah, uh, geez, we used to call it a certain kind of like jump out squad, but we had a special name for it. Eradication, I think I had changed the name. But the same eradication kind of concept, where they had changed the name. And um, I saw them driving to the community, and I saw the guys, them, the oozing out of the community through the sidewalk. When I say ooze, oozing out like pus, oozing out pores. Because the sidewalks um, run perpendicular to the main street and you would see the, the, the gangs of them just oozing out as the police going through the main artery. And um, I went for my son and picked him up Friday evening, so I'm gonna keep him for the weekend. And as I'm entering back the community, they were shaming. Balling, they kill Roger, they kill Roger, takes us in form of dead. And then this other guy, Mataran, Matlock. Mataran, we call him Mataran, right? I'm always smoking Mataran. Um, Mataran, uh, Matlock, his real name was Matthew. Matthew, Matlock, whichever you want to call him. Mataran. He came up and he said, Yo, they have your name on a, on a, on a list. They're, looking, they're picking up everybody on the list. And, you know, they have your name on the list. But how they probably had my name on the list was they were picking up everybody on the football team, which was stupid. They used the football team and claimed the football team was a part of the whole gang 
establishment. It was foolish because the football team was really a church team that I had started. And it's just that the church didn't have enough meal in it. So I had to bring in the man from off the corner, bring in the guys from off the community in the football team, which was a good thing. We actually won, and I think I told the story already. So I won't get into that again, but it was a success. It was a great thing, you know. Got a couple of youth, I mean, in fact, one youth never turned, at least one youth never turned back. Got into the church, he became a member of the, 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 the instrument playing, the choir, but the, he played, I think he played piano to this day. Well, I don't know if, well, up to the point when I was leaving Jamaica um, and points after when I went to visit. So it wasn't like it was a, the church was a gang team. It was just police just get bad information. And Roger, no, I can't, I don't fully, and I wish probably I had spent some time to fully um, flush out how Roger ended up dying. The story that we took, and back then, you know, it was a fascinating kind of story. So we took that story and run with it and didn't even ask questions, and we should. But the story is that the police came doing their thing. Roger was on the top of the list because they wanted Roger for other things. They claimed for shooting off a kid over there. Other scheme, phase one, phase two, phase three. We have three phases them days. And phase one and phase two always a war. Or phase one and phase three always a war. At war. So apparently they were saying that there was this youth that was shot and killed at a domino game. And they have it that is Roger that had done it. Now I had seen Roger a couple of days before when I was going to play football one morning. And I saw him hiding while the police, a smaller force, was doing some searches. And I said, Roger, you know, you need to be. Be careful, cause your name calling up, and him just he does the Roger laugh. <laughs> Never forget it. That's a Texas laugh. <laughs> nah, man, they can't catch you Texas, man. They have for good to catch you Texas. Rooftop, man. Yeah, there. So I, all right. So I went play my soccer, football, early morning, then carry on with the rest of the day. Never see Roger again, alive again. Um, the story is that. When the police were doing their raid, not a raid really, but whatever they were doing, I don't even know. And, and it's, it, 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 it is really to our deficit that we don't really ask the questions. And, and we just take the hyped up version of the stories and run with it. But just looking back, we should have really asked some questions. Uh, possibly we wouldn't probably have gotten any answers anyhow. But anyway. Uh, the right answers would probably just get the same hyped up story. But um, police come, blah, 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 going up Trout Avenue, because, you know, going up Trout Avenue where you yeah, had the crews and thing, and flushing out the man them, and everybody disappear. And here comes Roger. This is the story where uh, they claim a homie, homie had gone. They claimed he fired it. Or he tried to fire that. That's the thing with the story. I don't even sure they fired it or he pointed it or it misfired or it didn't fire or whatever. And then he ran down the walkway. Why would Roger um, fatigue the police? You understand? He perturbed the police, pulled the attention to himself and run down the walkway. Then now he's hiding behind a wall. 
police are going, most some of them run past, but he then, you know, kind of do a detour and he's hiding behind a wall. So they are now flooding the area, but he has this little spot that he's hiding. Apparently they say that he probably was snickering, they say, <laughs> I don't know, he was snickering. And this female police heard him and put her gun over the wall. She didn't even look good. She just probably figured that that's where he was. There was someone there hiding and she just turned the gun over the wall and turned it on him. And that was it. I don't know. That's the story. I, we, we, the rest is, we couldn't get the body for a while because it was close to Christmas and the government pathologists had gone on vacation. So we didn't get the body until after Christmas. And um, they had to pay the, 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 the government for the bullets. And um, I remember the funeral again. I don't know why I keep going down that road. Um, we were at the funeral at the Seventh-day Adventist Church, which later on came to be the place where they killed Otis Little Brother. What was Otis Little Brother's name again? Dwight. Dwight. Yeah, they killed Dwight. Otis Little Brother, they stabbed him while he was at church. Look at you, and this is not even a youth who even know badness. This is not even, I think that stabbing destroyed that family. That family just, 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 just dissolved after. Um, the Clark family, God bless you guys. Um, but it just, you could see the, 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 the youngest, Dwight, nicest, coolest, easiest going youth. Troubles nobody, some foolishness in church and some guy stabbed him and poor guy died and it just it just it just it just it just ate through that family. Never forget it. But we were at that church. That's the church we were church in Raja. And the boys them from over there that came face tree start busing shot and police came. I had a geometro at the time. Yes, I drove a geometro left hand drive thankfully it's the way it was because if it wasn't for the geometry i probably wouldn't have met my wife which is another story or i wouldn't yeah so anyway um because what i'd done was the left hand drive of the geometry was where i had the courage to reach without kind of bending over from the main road i could just pull up on the south shoulder and say hey um, I know you're walking that way. She was walking out of a cab heading to Britain. And I saw her, like I said, and I said, hey, I know you live, I know you're heading that way. I promise I won't talk your years off. Um, I'm going that way. And if you want, I can drop you at your gate. And that was the beginning of that, you know. I promise I wouldn't talk her. And she looked at me a couple of times like, I wonder why. And uh, you see that, that, record, that look of recognition and resi resignment and here we are 20 odd years later so anyway um what i was saying the geometro so yeah fata priest was in the geometro with me never forget it fata priest old gangster i'm like what this heck gangster come, come sit down in the geometro and we drove to we got police escort to medores was it medores I'm pretty sure it's our Dovecat. One of the two. I think it's Medores. We got police escort because of the shoot up. The, the, the police was called and um, the police came. And it's funny enough, the guys from Roger crew was doing gun salute up in the trees up in the hill. So 
we were thinking that's why the police came. But then the police came, they said they hear about a shooting. And we were able to say, it's them boy from Cross Phase 3 doing the shooting. A guy named Nigel. And Nigel, never forget it, the name Nigel come to mind. Nigel and MC Crook. And Nigel was, was like the name of the guy who everybody in Phase 1, the gangs, wanted. Because Nigel took blood and they wanted blood from Nigel. So the police say, yeah, 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 we saw them running down the street when we were coming, blah, 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 blah. Give these guys escorts. So the police bike parked up at the corner of the road and we drove out and Fata Priest jumped in beside me. And I remember my, 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 my radiator had gotten a, nicked by one of the bullets. So when I got back home, I realized that my radiator was running out and I had to get that fixed, patched. And um, what else? But I remember the funeral, man. And the funeral, the funeral, the sad. One street day, Boyster Man was playing from the back of a white deportee, a Nissan, either a Nissan Sony hatchback. It must be a Nissan Sony hatchback. It could be a Toyota Carolla hatchback, you know, but I don't think they have much of them there. A Nissan Sony there. It had much Nissan Sony hatchback. And the, the guys who open up the coffin and throw weed, perfume, and a small flask of rum in the coffin giving Roger. I remember when I looked at Roger's face, that was the first time I saw, I think I saw the face of, no, probably, probably my grandfather before. But um, I remember that, that thing about the absence of blood from her face and how stiff the skin looks on the face when there's no blood, no life in that face. And the stiffness, almost like a First Nation stiffness, you know, that stiff, sharp um, 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 features. Yeah, everybody probably look like Indian, First Nation Indian, Aboriginal, <laughs> in terms of losing that. Guys, the same thing I remember with my mom, that, and the same thing I remember with my granddad, that stiff, no, 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 no movement on the face. The, 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 the flesh is, the skin is very tight to the face. That's what I remember. And I remember that with Roger. I remember the head was swollen, uh, bigger than I, I thought it would have been. Um, so it's not like swollen, but it was somehow fatter. And I remember that skin, the skin tags where the bullet holes went in the, 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 the little, the little way that you could see they fold the skin back over and made some kind of um was small, just by like the tip of your finger kind of size, the tip of your finger where they, you know, made some makeup. But what I remember was Miss Birdie bawling, man, Raja Mother crying and Raja Mother crying and the people them, the gangster them thinking it's all joke and fun and laughing and Texas this and and Raja Mother crying, and Raja Mother crying, and she walking away from the grave site before they ever put the, the coffin down, and she falling down between the graves, because she walking between other graves, and she falling down, and somebody lifting her up, and she bawled. And Miss Birdie had actually left Jamaica to go to foreign for a better life. That's why she had left her kids here. So she had to come back to bury her son. So, Loki thing, and 
I think I went half and half and half and half a while ago. I need to pull it back now. And when Loki talk about going back to Jamaica, man, going back home, people understand. People understand now. I went shut it up. Look, I understand. I get it. There's a yearning to go back home. You now I understand now. Now that I'm looking around at certain things in Jamaica, and I used to say, why do people build these big homes and why do they build these? Why do you know, it's you, you, a juggies, a juggies money, built in the 80s, built in the 90s, juggies money, juggies money, drugs money, juggies, juggies. You see these big homes, these large homes throughout the island in certain places. I am sure Montego Bay especially, out in Montego Bay, these humongous homes. Um, Tower Isle area, um, where else you, you have these big ass homes. Um, down by plantation, we had some big ass homes down that side. Um, over these oversized homes, um, where else is known for big ass home? Uh, I don't know if I want to say out oh, by Cardiff's side, Runaway Bay. Um, these big ass homes. And you say, why do people need to build these big ass homes, Tripoli? Why? They can't live in it to the maximum. Sometimes live at the house and they're living in a five, six, seven bedroom, 5,000, 6,000 square foot house. And I kind of understand now that I'm reading this thing from Laurie Guns. Because when you have to live on Sesame Street or the Papa's graveyard, and that's how you exist, and you make the sacrifice. And when people, they, 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 you don't have running water, they shit in buckets and, and, and have the buckets off to an to enclave. When you live that way, <laughs> yo. When you go back to Jamaica, you want to build a freaking mansion. You want to build a city for yourself. I can imagine that. I can imagine the, the feeling to do, the need to do that. So I totally get it now. I and I totally, but I kind of figure it out. Because you want to know that all that sacrifice wasn't for nothing. You want to know that you didn't leave and go live in hell to come back to live any less than you would have if, if you had stayed. You need to make sure that when you get back there, you set such a distance between where you think you would have been had you stayed in your paradise and not gone to hell. You understand me? So I can understand that. So anyway, I'm going to wrap it up now by saying, you know, one love to all. Uh, we're getting to the end of this book. God bless. One love. Stay blessed.